I want to send some very special thank yous to people who have supported the Crime Lines Coffee Fund in the last several months. I really do appreciate any amount that people send. It's so kind of you to think about me and to appreciate the show enough to want to essentially give me a tip. And I really appreciate that. So a big, huge thank you goes to Karen, Peter, Brenton, Julie, Jennifer, Molly, Paige, Melanie, Laura, Claudia, Amy, Robert, and Gina. Thank you so, so much. A family feud carries over into tribal politics. When one person's back was against the wall, they chose violence in one of the only modern mass shootings in Indian country. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines in the first episode of 2022. I want to thank everyone for their positive feedback on the Q&A last week. I was worried that I got a little too detailed, especially when it went over an hour long and thought people were going to find it pretty boring, especially the ins and outs of podcasting. But from what I've heard from people is they're so used to that being behind a curtain that it was actually really interesting to hear it all laid out. So I'm glad everyone enjoyed that Q&A. After the 12 Days of Crime Lines, the Q&A, the holiday madness with my large family, I do feel good to be back here in the studio just working on our regular content. I tried something different in choosing cases for January. I had my upper two Patreon tiers hop on a live stream with me and choose the four cases from a list I presented them. And So the cases you hear this month are from that, and this is, of course, one of those cases. All of my sources are always linked in the show notes, but I did want to mention one of them, and it is a book called Mass Murder in California's Empty Quarter by Ray A. March. It's a book that I referred to in my Q&A when I talked about how I use books in my research and how I limit my use of them. I only use them for specific information and not to regurgitate someone else's work and give you a book report. I encourage everyone to check out this book. It is on sale on the Kindle as I'm recording this. I don't know how long that sale will continue. So it's not terribly expensive right now. It's not just a detailed look into this case, but it goes into a lot of the history and the social issues that we're just not going to get into today. So I highly recommend everyone check it out if you are interested in hearing more context surrounding this case. This case takes place in an area we've never discussed before, a rancheria. These are unique to California, and they are small indigenous settlements, not unlike reservations. In fact, they're exactly like reservations in the sense of how the federal government views them. In an interview with Indian Country Today, Howard Dickstein, who's an attorney who works with a lot of California tribes, said that the difference between a reservation and a rancheria is actually historical, not legal. 
The federal government does not distinguish between them when it comes to grants, land, or sovereignty. Prior to 1906, almost all of the land in California given to the tribes were called reservations. The Rancheria designation seems to have come into favor when they were talking about small tracts of land. An example given in that interview I mentioned is the Rumsey Band of Winton Indians, which is now known by their actual name for themselves, the Yochadihi Winton. But what happened there was that federal agents had gone to California specifically to identify indigenous people who were either literally homeless or were living in small groups in communities outside of reservations. This was in the early 20th century. They found that there were several people living outside of Rumsey, California, who were Winton, and they were given about 185 acres to live on. Being that this was smaller than most of the reservations in California at the time, it was given the name the Rumsey Rancheria, with rancheria being a Spanish word that had already been used to describe native settlements. So the rancheria we're talking about today is the Cedarville Rancheria, which is 26 acres, established in 1914. It is located on the outskirts of Cedarville, California, and we are talking about that northeast corner of the state near both the Oregon and the Nevada borders in the foothills of the Warner Mountains. This is the area of the Northern Paiutes, which is a tricky way to phrase it because the Paiutes were not a singular group. They were several bands of semi-nomadic people who shared a language. The reservations and rancherias set up for the Northern Paiutes generally included anyone who lived in that immediate area at the time they were set up. In 1934, the Indian Reorganization Act was passed. Two things it did that are relevant to this episode. One, it essentially defined reservations and rancherias as different words for more or less the same thing. And two, it determined that it was up to each tribe to decide how enrollment would be established. As the years went on and more and more people moved off of the reservations, this became more important. Would the grandchild of a tribal member who never stepped foot on the reservation and had mostly non-Indigenous ancestry be allowed to enroll as a member of the tribe? The tribes had answered this question for centuries by themselves, and then the government interfered, and then they were finally more or less backed out of it again, and it was again up to the tribes to determine it. There are a few ways tribes in the United States determine who is eligible for enrollment. This is just an overview for your information. There's a lot of detail and nuance we are going to brush up against but not get into. So one way is called blood quantum, meaning how much of your ancestry is linked to that tribe. It is often one-fourth, but not always. And sometimes it doesn't have to be specifically with one tribe. It can be any indigenous ancestry as long as it adds up to the blood quantum and at least one of those ancestors was from that tribe. You do need to have the vital records paperwork to prove it because DNA tests from like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, those are not accepted as proof of blood quantum. 
and neither is family traditional. My grandmother said her mother was Native American. That is not accepted. You need the paperwork. And honestly, there are few people in this country who have more paperwork than most Native American tribes. Between tribal documents, treaties, land records, the U.S. government's repeated censuses of indigenous people, and so on, if you have a Native ancestor, their name will almost surely show up somewhere. Blood quantum is very controversial, and it is hotly debated. It was used by colonizers to try to dismantle tribes by limiting who could be considered Native enough to join. Some tribes choose to use it themselves, and it is a debate I recommend reading up more about if you are curious about the question, what does it mean to be Native? This is that nuance and detail I mentioned that we're just brushing up against. Another way some nations determine who can enroll is residency. You have to have lived on tribal lands, whether the reservation or ancestral lands, for a certain amount of time. This shows that not only were your ancestors members of the tribe, but you have some connection to it. Another common way eligibility to enroll is determined, and the one used by the Cedarville Rancheria is lineage. Sometimes the lineage has to come from a particular side of your family, like it's patriarchal or matriarchal, but with Cedarville, the person or their direct ancestor must be listed on an official census of the tribe that was taken in July 1954. That is the snapshot of tribal membership, and you have to be able to point to someone on that list and draw a direct line to them. The Northern Paiutes enrolled through the Cedarville Rancheria number around 35. Most live on the Rancheria in a dozen or so homes, but around 10 or so live elsewhere. As you can imagine, this is really just a few families. The tribe owns and operates a local gas station that's not technically on the Rancheria, it's right outside of it, but most of their income comes through grants as well as casino payments. Though the Cedarville Rancheria does not operate their own casino, there is a proceed-sharing deal that means the tribe and members do get money from the profits of Native-owned casinos. Now, one person on the 1954 census of the Cedarville tribe of Northern Paiutes was Virginia Sweeney. She grew up in town near the Rancheria, but moved away to the Sacramento area. It was while she was out in Sacramento that she had her five children. Virginia raised her children with knowledge of their indigenous ancestry, but no real connection to the culture or the tribe as they grew up. But after her children were grown and out on their own, Virginia and her husband, Larry Lash, decided to move to the rancheria where they had a right to tribal housing since Virginia was an enrolled member. To dispel a pretty common myth, not all tribal housing is free. Some people think everyone who lives on the reservations get free homes, but that is not true. A lot of reservations have their tribal housing income-based, like many housing programs. But because the rancheria was so small and they did have that casino income coming in, the houses were provided free of charge to the residents there. 
1993, Virginia's youngest child, 24-year-old Donna Lash, followed her to the rancheria. Now, Donna is not her real name, and towards the end of the episode, we'll talk about that a little bit more on why it was changed. Moving with Donna was her toddler son, Jack Stockton, and Donna's 66-year-old boyfriend, Marvin Rhodes. Marvin was not Jack's father, biologically speaking, but he did take on that role, even though he had finished raising his other children. The two did eventually marry, and Donna Lash became Donna Rhodes. The following year, in 1994, Virginia's son, Rurik Davis, moved to the rancheria with his family. Rurik and Donna had not been enrolled in the tribe until they moved there, but because of Virginia, they were both able to. And at this point, they learned more about their northern Paiute culture, with Rurik being immediately very involved, not just in learning more about it, but also trying to improve conditions on the rancheria. At some point, Virginia and Larry Lash ended up with custody of five of Virginia's grandchildren. Her daughter, Tina, had essentially just left them with their grandparents. Then another cousin moved in, and within a few years, the bulk of the tribal members living on the rancheria were all from Virginia's line. After moving to the rancheria, Virginia Lash did become the tribal chairperson, which is an elected position. After Virginia retired, there was an interim tribal chair and then a power struggle between Rurik Davis and his sister Donna. When Rurik was eventually elected as tribal chair, Donna claimed he would use his position to pick on her and get after her for every little thing. A big example given was about Donna's yard. While the house was provided for her use by the tribe, it was still her job to maintain the yard properly, and hers was starting to look a bit like a junkyard. And although they were a small tribe, they have always had enforcement for environmental issues. So having things like leaking broken-down cars and propane tanks on your property was an issue with environmental compliance. Donna perceived this as work was picking on her, but it really sounds like he was just enforcing the rules. The real breakdown in the relationship between Donna and Rurik is allegedly Rurik's desire to have Donna and their mother, Virginia, disenrolled from the tribe, which would cause them to lose everything they got from being tribal members. That included their housing, their health care, and their casino payments. Someone cannot be disenrolled without cause, and Rurik's motive for wanting not just Donna disenrolled, but also his mother, has not been fully explained. However, it appears if this is something he pursued, it was probably political. And Rurik was also likely being influenced by what was happening around California with disenrollments. There were a lot of tribes actively disenrolling people, and it often made the news. Some of the people taken off the rolls were people who did not actually meet the requirements for tribal membership. However, sometimes these disqualifications were forced by the tribe. They would posthumously disenroll someone who was on a census. 
That meant all of their descendants were automatically disenrolled since they no longer had the lineage to the census they were using to prove that they were qualified to enroll. Some people were disenrolled because they used a different means to prove lineage. Something like their ancestor was listed on early documentation, but died before the specific census usually used for enrollment was taken. They were allowed to enroll at one time using the other document, but then the tribe decided to stop allowing the exceptions and didn't grandfather people in. And this included people who had multiple generations who were enrolled. The move to disenroll can sometimes be seen as an attempt to define what it means to be Native and what it means to be a member of a tribe. It can also make sure that people aren't claiming something they don't have a right to claim. But sometimes it is politically motivated, which is what it may have been with Rurik. Disenrolling a section of his family who did not support him politically would solve some of his problems. There are also accusations that this process of disenrollment and this wave of it in California was actually about money. The tribes that allocate casino payments directly to tribal members do so from a set amount that then they divide up. Everyone would get a larger individual payout if they had fewer people to split it with. How do you get fewer people to split it with? You disqualify people from getting it. There are very strong and ongoing movements to stop disenrollment from being used as a political weapon like this. But in this specific instance with Rurik, Donna, and Virginia, Rurik's hands were tied. He could find no valid reason to disenroll Donna, and even if he could find a valid reason to disenroll Virginia, her leaving would then kick him off the rolls too because they were all the same branch of the family tree. If his mother lost her claim to enrollment, the lineage has been broken and Rurik would be disqualified from enrollment. So instead, Rurik and Donna continued their arguments over everything from minor tribal issues to personal family issues. The two would get into verbal altercations publicly. At least one turned physical. Donna went to the hospital with some injuries once that she claimed were from Rurik. And after their mother, Virginia, died, the hostility between the siblings continued. Now, it seems odd to me that a family who had so little connection to the community initially and grew up away from it would wield so much power, even over those who had lived on the rancheria for most of their lives. But we really do have to remember the dynamics here. The majority of the voting members were related to Virginia Lash. So who else would be in charge or get enough votes other than her or her children? Eventually, Donna Rhodes was elected in 2009 and again in 2012 as the tribal chair. It was her turn to use her power to antagonize Rurik. 
She threatened to disenroll him for interfering with tribal business when all he did was ask to see the financial books. He was concerned about where the tribal money was going, particularly in 2012 when they were given a large grant for housing improvements. This is obviously not grounds for disenrollment, but it does show how Donna reacted when someone did attempt to look a little too closely at what she was doing. She couldn't disenroll Rurik, but she did fire or at least attempt to fire any employees who got too close. In 2013, a new administrator was hired, Sheila Russo. Sheila was not indigenous, but she spent a lot of her career moving around and working with communities that needed her expertise. She wasn't a policymaker. What her role was, was to go into small communities that were often underserved or underprivileged, and she would help them organize and put their policies into work. With her expertise and her experience, Sheila could have gotten a big-name job in almost any city, but this was where her heart was. So she and her husband packed up and moved to the area so that she could take this job. There is some indication that Sheila knew she was getting into a murky situation because one thing she did pretty early on was get the tribal council to change the employment termination policies. Previously, the chairperson, at this point Donna, could fire anyone they wanted pretty much. Sheila had the council change it to where there had to be a tribal vote to remove her from her position. It took absolute power away from Donna, and it's pretty in line with how other small communities and cities work. The mayor can't walk around just firing everybody. Another red flag Sheila came up against was a power imbalance. Donna was the tribal chair. The vice chair was her son, Jack. The chief financial officer, that was Aaron, Jack's wife. The top three people with access to tribal funds and the oversight of the use of those funds were a mother, her son, and his wife. So it couldn't have been a huge surprise when Sheila started noticing that there were some financial irregularities in the books in 2012. She was hired in 2013, so she just went back to look at the year before and already found issues. That's not even talking about anything she would find if she kept digging back. And 2012 is, of course, a significant year because of that housing grant they received that was over $50,000. When Sheila would suggest or advise for this money to be used for intended purposes, Donna would put up some roadblocks. Now, if the money was set aside for a specific purpose, Sheila's job is to help them make sure it goes to that specific purpose. What was the issue with using it? Unless, of course, all of the money wasn't still set aside. More red flags. But it wasn't as though anyone could spot these red flags very easily because the accounting files were a complete mess. Payroll reports weren't even being run, which really should have only been a matter of clicking a few buttons in whatever software they're using. Sheila decided to fire Aaron Stockton, the CFO, and try to get the books in order. 
So Sheila went into Aaron's office to get all the files she needed to organize, and while she was in there, Donna and her son Jack Stockton, again Aaron's husband, showed up. Donna told Sheila she was fired. Sheila reminded her, there was a policy change. Donna could not fire her. So then Donna said, Sheila's going on administrative leave. But Sheila was not going to back down, and she said no, that wasn't happening either. This was something new to Donna, because according to pretty much everyone the media ever interviewed from Cedarville, Donna bullied her way through life. She was used to bulldozing her way to what she wanted, with maybe Rurik being the only one who would really stand up to her. But Sheila was not only standing up to Donna, she outsmarted her first by taking away that power to fire her. Clearly outmatched, Donna tried to physically shove Sheila. But still, that didn't scare her off. Sheila brought in an independent auditor who found that funds were being misspent in the range of fifty dollars to $60,000, primarily through the misuse of tribal credit cards. Sheila tried to report this suspected embezzlement to the local authorities, but due to tribal sovereignty, they said it wasn't their jurisdiction. The embezzlement was a matter for the tribe to deal with, but also the federal government, since some of the allegedly misspent funding came through federal grants. So Sheila took it up with the tribe first. They voted on a recall, and Donna lost her position as chair, and Jack lost his position as vice chair. Rurik Davis took over as the interim chair until another election could be held. Then Sheila and Rurik together went to the U.S. Department of the Interior's office in Sacramento to report the embezzlement, and an investigation was opened. Weeks later, the tribe began eviction proceedings against Donna and her son Jack. This would force them to leave tribal housing and the rancheria. It had been their home for around 20 years at this point. It has been inconsistently reported about what other benefits they would lose with the eviction, like Donna's job at the tribal gas station or the casino payments. The tribal attorney said they wouldn't lose this unless they were removed from the rolls, unless they were disenrolled, which they hadn't been at that point. But other sources say that they wouldn't get the same casino payment if they lived elsewhere and pretty much all they would still have is their access to health care. Regardless of what she would lose in the process, Donna just didn't think it was fair she was facing this eviction because, according to her, she hadn't done anything wrong. And the investigation into these alleged acts wasn't even finished yet, so it was too soon for the tribe to be able to determine her guilt. But the process went forward anyway, and on February 19th, 2014, the tribal committee voted to evict both Donna and Jack. The two immediately appealed, and a hearing for the appeal was held the next day on February 20th. The tribe had hired a judge for this as a neutral third-party mediator. Rurik felt very good about how the tribe was proceeding with this. They were being more organized and more mindful about how they 
went forward. After years of mismanagement and this family discord bleeding into tribal politics, this was, to Rurik Davis, a move in the right direction, a move to get things on track. Though Jack Stockton did file the appeal, he decided not to attend the enforcement hearing and the appeal the next day. He said he spoke with an attorney who advised him not to go, not even to go and ask for a continuance until the attorney could look into things. It's not clear what attorney told him this or even why. Maybe Jack and the attorney decided not to fight it. Maybe they decided it was going to cost too much, so there was no point going if he was just going to comply and move out anyway. The tribal committee itself wasn't entirely sure about proceeding that day. There was conversation about delaying it a few more days. The judge said she could be there in person if they waited, rather than being there on a conference call over the phone. And there were also some concerns expressed that Donna may not have had enough time to prepare her case for the appeal. But Rurik wanted to move forward, and so did Glenn Kalonico, who was both the housing chair and one of Donna's nephews. In the end, they decided to proceed anyway, and the committee denied Donna and Jack's appeals. Donna was then brought into the conference room to be told by the judge that her appeal was denied. When Donna entered the building, she was carrying a black backpack and first went into the bathroom. She was in there for a few minutes before entering the committee room. Sitting across the conference table from Donna was Rurik, his three daughters, Glenn Kalonico, Sheila Russo, the administrator, another of Donna and Rurik's nieces named Angel Penn. She was holding her five-day-old newborn, and then there were two other employees and the tribal lawyer. Another nephew, Richard Lash, was sitting off to the side. So it was a pretty full table, pretty full room, with Donna on one side and everyone else on the other. The judge was on the speakerphone in the middle of the table. She walked through the facts and details of the eviction case, which Donna would jump in to correct things like dates and other little issues. Sometimes Donna would pipe in with something almost entirely besides the point. And this was a reason the committee was happy to have the judge in charge. She wasn't going to give in to Donna's usual tactics or distractions, and she wasn't going to be baited into an argument. She kept things moving along. When Donna was told there were no more avenues to appeal, Donna said she disagreed. She said that she had a right to bring the case to the committee council meaning the whole tribe and not just the executive committee. They would then decide if the eviction would go through or not. It turned out Donna was wrong. The process she was talking about applied to appealing a disenrollment. It did not apply to evictions. Either Donna misunderstood the law or she, for some reason, thought this eviction process was part of her being disenrolled, which it wasn't. The judge asked Donna where in the tribal law did it say that she could appeal to the community, and Donna didn't answer. Instead, she stood up and put her hands in her pockets. Rurik leaned across the table, and it looked like he was about to say something to Donna. Donna then pulled out a gun 
and shot 50-year-old Rurik Davis in the head. Rurik fell back. Donna then turned the gun on the rest of the people in the room as they dove for cover. She shot 19-year-old Angel Penn in the chest while she held her newborn baby on her lap. Angel fell to the ground with the baby under her body. The baby was uninjured. As everyone tried to take cover, Donna shot Sheila Davis in the head. Sheila fell on top of another employee. This employee was a close friend of Sheila's, and she played dead with Sheila's body on top of her in the hopes Donna would assume she had already shot her, had already killed her. And it worked. Donna kept moving. Donna turned the gun on Rurik's daughters, hitting two of them, Melissa and Monica. The third daughter had just left the room before the shooting to use the bathroom. 30-year-old Glenn Kalonico yelled at Donna to stop. She turned on him, saying she wouldn't stop until they were all dead. She then shot Glenn multiple times. At some point, Donna pulled out a second gun, but it jammed after a few shots. So she went into the kitchen and grabbed a knife, trying to stab anyone she thought was still alive. There were people who managed to get out of the room. Richard Lash was one of them. He had left before the shooting started to check on the children playing outside. The employees and the attorney got out, one of them yelling for everyone outside to run, and the other running a block or two to the police station to report the shooting. Rurik's daughter, Melissa, was critically wounded from gunshot wounds, but she managed to fight off Donna's attempts to stab her, and she got out of the building. She went down the wheelchair ramp and fell into the arms of the tribe's maintenance man, Spencer Babro. He led Melissa down towards her car, hoping to get her away from the danger until help could arrive. As he did this, Donna came out with the knife, saying something about cutting the head off the snake. She then tried to stab Melissa from over Spencer's shoulder. Spencer managed to get the knife out of Donna's hand and get her to the ground while they waited for the police. And when they arrived, 44-year-old Donna Rhodes was taken into custody, still going on about cutting the head off the snake. She had to be moved to an undisclosed location because it turned out Sheila Russo's husband worked at the local jail. The first responders at the scene were told there was a baby in the building, so they rushed in, and they could hear him crying. They found him alive and shielded by Angel's body. In all, there were four victims of homicide and two seriously wounded. Angel Penn was the youngest at 19 years old. She died by one gunshot to the chest. Angel had her first son when she was 17, and she honestly struggled to care for him. She hadn't grown up with the best examples. Her own mother left her on her grandparents' doorstep. Cycles of trauma and abuse continued, and Angel was eventually sent to a boot camp-style boarding school at 14 because her grandparents could not handle her. Angel was the exact type of teenager they talk about when they say that kids who make themselves seem the most unlovable are the ones who need love the most. 
Angel had learned to survive her childhood and to protect herself. When Angel returned from the boarding school, she was soon put into foster care. After her first baby was born and she couldn't care for him, his father took full custody. With her new baby now, Angel was in a somewhat different place. She was a few years older, and she was more engaged and involved with her community. She had a lot of support. Just that morning, before the eviction appeal, they had thrown her a belated baby shower. Someone told Angel she should go home afterwards, having just had a baby, but she wanted to stay because she wanted to be a part of things with the tribal council. Sheila Russo was 47 years old and killed by two shots to the head. She was married with two children, and her husband said he wanted people to know that Sheila's heart was always in the right place. She was doing her job, the job she was hired for, the job she put everything into. She did not take the position with the tribe expecting to uncover embezzlement or to help oust anyone. She took the job to help, and that's exactly what she was doing. And that's what she would have kept doing, regardless of who was the tribal chair. Rurik Davis was a 50-year-old father of three girls, two who watched him be murdered by a single shot to the head. He was also the father to his girlfriend Holly's kids by choice, and he took his role as protector seriously. In the book, Mass Murder in California's Empty Quarter, it was said that some called Rurik the Indian Fabio because of his good looks, and that his nickname, Two Bears, was fitting for him. There were two sides to Rurik. On the one hand, he was kind and warm. He usually won people over with kindness in contrast to his sister, who did so through bullying. But Rurik could also be brash when he did feel he or his loved ones were being wronged. One story about Rurik that really stood out to me was about a time he went to a conference about mentoring Native youth. During a workshop, the speaker stopped and pointed at the pool where the conference was being held, which was visible from the room they were in, and he said, people should be more like that man out there. He was pointing to Rurik. Instead of sitting in a conference room listening to someone tell him how to mentor youth, Rurik was in the pool playing with the teens and actually connecting with them. Though he was raised away from his northern Paiute heritage, Rurik Davis truly showed what reconnection means. 30-year-old Glenn Kalonico was Rurik's nephew and Angel's cousin, killed by two shots to the chest, though he was hit eight times total. He had yelled at Donna, which distracted her long enough to save Melissa Davis's life, but at the cost of his own. Glenn was a father to six young children, and he was known for always putting his children first. He had a remarkable ability to let go of grudges and extend kindness. Glenn worked as a farmhand after he got off drugs, and he hoped to one day become a motivational speaker. He had refocused his life on his family, on fitness, on hard work. He wanted to talk to people, particularly other indigenous people, about how he broke the cycles of trauma and abuse because he believed his story 
could help others overcome their struggles. These four people were murdered as they were doing what they felt called to do, which was improve their community. And Donna Rhodes was charged with all four of these murders. She was then charged with two attempted murders for shooting Melissa Davis four times and Monica Davis once. These charges were controversial only because many thought this wasn't enough. Donna may have only hit six people with bullets, but she stated herself that she wasn't going to stop until they were all dead. She intended to kill everyone in that room, and she should face charges for every person in that room. And that's not to mention the children who were playing outside the building and coming and going who were in harm's way. That doesn't include Angel's baby, though she was charged with child endangerment. Was that enough when she pointed a gun at someone who was holding a baby in her arms? Even the uninjured were traumatized that day, and they were victims. The Bureau of Indian Affairs sent a team to the area to provide grief counseling, but what the surviving members of the tribe wanted were more charges against Donna. The state did try to get some more charges laid, but it wasn't quite that easy. And I am going to explain first why I said state here. We've talked about this how many times? Serious crimes on reservations are federal jurisdiction, usually. The tribal building is actually in Alturas and not physically on the rancheria, though it seems in most cases this would still be considered federal jurisdiction because it was a tribe's building. But there is still an exception here to the federal jurisdiction as a rule. And that is Public Law 280, which was passed in 1953. This law passed most criminal jurisdiction over reservations and rancherias from the federal system to the state. However, it only applies in six states. It happened during a time when the federal government was trying to reduce its involvement with tribes. This is the same time frame they were trying to turn reservations into counties or cities. It's all kind of part of the same movement. California was one of the states that took on more jurisdiction, so this was in state court and not federal. At a preliminary hearing, the state played the video of the shooting for the judge. This whole thing was caught by security cameras. The judge could see and hear everything. The prosecution argued that Donna should be charged with the additional counts of attempted murder, whether she shot the others in the room or not. Even if she didn't aim at them, they could all hear her clearly say she wasn't going to stop until they were all dead. The intent to kill was there, therefore this was attempted murder. But the judge disagreed. There was no evidence Donna actually intended to kill the people she didn't shoot at except for her words. It's not like she was spraying the place with bullets. Every person she shot she approached and pointed the gun at them. They were mostly shot from two to three feet away. The judge didn't think her words were enough probable cause to support additional charges. The prosecutor filed to have this decision reconsidered by another judge, but he eventually conceded to the ruling and just stopped pursuing the additional charges. He felt like they had enough with four murders and two attempted murder charges. Adding more charges wouldn't add to the strength of the case or to the potential sentence. 
The others in the room, who were traumatized and victimized by what they experienced, were unhappy with the decision to just drop it. They wanted justice for what happened to them, and I really can't say I blame them. Some also expressed upset that more people weren't charged. They thought it was super suspect that Jack Stockton, Donna's son, didn't attend the eviction appeal and enforcement hearing. He said an attorney told him not to go, but he never explained the reasoning or even named the attorney. Some suspected that he knew what his mother was planning, and that's why he stayed away. Sheila's husband, Philip, said that months before the shooting, Jack made a comment to him about wanting Rurik killed. Philip didn't take it seriously at the time. But this statement, in hindsight, did strengthen the belief that Jack had knowledge, if not involvement. Some also voiced questions about Donna's nephew, Richard Lash, who had leaned towards supporting her. Not only had he left the room right before the shooting started, Richard had helped another cousin clean Donna's guns just a day before the shooting. Did he know something was going to happen? Richard and the other cousin who cleaned the guns said they didn't know she planned anything. They were just helping her with a task. And Richard said he left the room to check on the children outside, which included his own. If Richard knew a shooting was going to happen or even suspected it would, why would he have his kid anywhere near the building that day? If he did support Donna, he may have decided it was time to check on the kids because he didn't want to be there when she was told she had no recourse and she had to move off the rancheria. People find excuses to leave awkward situations all the time. That's not uncommon. And I just have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that Richard would have taken his children somewhere or his child somewhere where he knew there was going to be a shooting. In the end, the state had no evidence to support anyone else knew what Donna was planning. And Donna's defense at the trial, which we'll get into, was that she didn't even know it was going to happen. There just wasn't enough to charge anyone else in spite of suspicions. While waiting on Donna's trial, which was a death penalty case, the investigation into the embezzlement occurred, but in the end, charges were not filed in spite of some troublesome findings. They found that the tribal credit card, which should have been locked in a drawer in the office, was regularly carried by and used by Aaron Stockton, Jack's wife. Some of the purchases appeared to be personal purchases. Furniture and bills were charged to the card. One purchase made was an inmate package that was sent to one of Donna's sisters who was incarcerated in a psychiatric facility. There would be no reason for the tribe to send that, so it was pretty easy to prove that was a personal expense. Jack and Aaron Stockton did not cooperate with the investigation, which was their right, since they were, in fact, the suspects being investigated. Donna was in jail, and her lawyer wasn't about to let her participate either. In the end, most of the evidence was actually against Aaron because she was the one in control of the card that was used the most. While some of the purchases made benefited Donna, 
That doesn't mean she made them herself or that she even directed Aaron to do so. Donna did use her own tribal card for unauthorized purchases, but it was far less than the $50,000 initially reported. The tribe ended up eventually filing with their insurance company over the money Aaron spent, making a claim for employee dishonesty. And though the embezzlement case did not make it to the court, it's very likely the investigation findings would have been enough to support Donna and Jack's evictions anyway. The focus then moved to the murder trial, though I think for the media and the general public, that's where it always was. The embezzlement investigation was really never more than background for most people following the case. And one reason for the media attention on this case specifically was how rare it was. The definition of a mass shooting is broadly a single attack in a small area with four or more victims. Some definitions do make a distinction between a public space or a private home, which would take things like family annihilations out of the realm of mass shooting. Some say to be a mass shooting, it has to occur in a public space. But regardless of which definition you use, and if you restrict it to a public space or you include private homes, 99% of the perpetrators are men. Having a woman commit something seen as a male crime, particularly out in public like this, will always catch the public's attention. And this case also gave the general public a look into something they don't often see, and that is the inner workings of tribal politics. I think what we mostly learned from all this backstory on how the tribe was running things is that they had similar ups and downs of a lot of small towns. It was flying under the radar and not written up in local papers as much, but that's pretty akin to what was happening here. And another thing that attracted attention to this was, of course, it was a death penalty case. California has had a moratorium on the death penalty since 2019. At that point, they had 737 people on death row. Only 3% of them were women. Donna didn't want to become part of that 3%, and in August 2014, six months after the murders, she offered to plead guilty in exchange for a life without parole sentence. She wanted the death penalty off the table. The state turned down this plea offer, and that actually got some backlash. The prosecutor told Ray March, the author of Mass Murder in California's Empty Quarter, that he had people straight out ask him why he was bothering with the expense of a death penalty case because who cares if they kill each other? And yes, they meant that as racist as it sounds. Native Americans killing each other was less of a crime in their eyes. Why waste their tax money on justice for Native victims? The prosecutor ignored this and went forward with the death penalty, in part because the surviving members of the tribe supported it in this case. He took their viewpoint on it over that of racists living in the area. The trial happened in December 2016, and of course, a huge part of the state's case was the video of the shooting and I am sure it impacted the jury greatly, especially since you can hear Angel's baby crying during much of it, and Glenn pleading with Donna to stop. And Donna saying, right out of her own mouth, 
that she wasn't stopping until they were all dead. There really isn't much for us to cover in the state's case because it was literally pointing at the video and then having people testify about their firsthand experiences. The defense case wasn't to deny what happened, but rather the premeditated nature of the murders. They argued that this was not first-degree murder, this was not a capital murder case, this was second-degree murder, because Donna didn't go in there planning to kill anyone, and she was provoked until she snapped. They had a psychologist testify that Donna had paranoid personality disorder. This meant that Donna had an unyielding mistrust and suspicion of others, even without cause. While that didn't change that Donna was able to understand the consequences of her actions and she was able to reason, it did explain why Donna felt she was provoked when someone else in that same situation would not have perceived it that way. According to the expert, Donna didn't perceive this hearing as just an eviction. She believed these people were actively trying to ruin her life. To explain her thinking and where she was, Donna took the stand in her own defense. She explained how she and Rorick were close when they were younger, and then he became tribal chair. He made moves to disenroll her and her mother, she believed, because they didn't vote for him. Donna testified that Virginia's feelings were deeply hurt by Rorick's actions, and that made Donna go into a protective mode. Her relationship with Rorick never really recovered. Donna then talked about the accusations of embezzlement and losing her role as the tribe's chair. She said she believed they were trying to push her out so that she and her son would lose their casino payment and everyone else in the tribe would get more money. Donna then got to the day of the killings, a day she says she didn't plan to kill anyone. She said that she regularly carried loaded guns for her own protection and had plans to go to Reno after the hearing, and that's why she had the guns on her. As for cleaning them the day before, she said it was because she was going to test fire them and possibly sell one. Donna said even going to the eviction hearing that day was a last-minute decision. Donna said she wasn't going to attend because she knew her appeal would be denied, no matter what she said in her defense. But then Richard Lash had called her and told her that they hired a judge to preside. Donna believed this neutral third party would give her a chance that the tribal committee would not, and she would not just get evicted for political reasons. Donna's attorney had her walk the court through what happened in that building. The state had accused Donna of having the guns in her backpack when she entered and then moving them to her pockets when she went into the bathroom. She did this, according to the state, because she anticipated she would be patted down for weapons. She thought that might happen because Rurik had Jack patted down for weapons the day before at the initial eviction proceedings. Donna supposedly kept the guns in her backpack until she realized they wouldn't be patting her down, and that's when she moved them to her pockets. Donna denied this happened. She said if she assumed they would pat her down, she would have assumed they would have looked in her backpack. She went to the bathroom because she needed to use the toilet. She was not trying to sneak the guns in. Donna said she got flustered when she tried to explain things to the judge, who she said was getting things wrong, like dates and sequences of events. 
As this was happening, she's getting flustered, and she glances at Rurik, who was sitting, according to Donna, looking smug. Donna testified that Rurik would accuse her of being aggressive when she would talk with her hands, and she wanted to stay calm. So she put her hands in her pocket to keep from waving them around. That's when she felt the guns that she said she completely forgot were in her pockets. She had the idea to pull out a gun and point it at Rurik. Her thinking here was just to stop him from having a smug smirk on his face. She was pointing it at him to get him to stop. And then Donna claimed to not remember anything after that. She only knew what happened because of the video. She even became upset when she talked about Angel's baby, saying she didn't even realize a baby was in the room and that she would never hurt a child. On cross-examination, Donna was asked if she was glad she killed Rurik, and she said that the stress from him was gone after his death, but she wasn't glad she killed him. Now, this wasn't exactly the most convincing testimony in the world. The jury saw real emotion from Donna when she talked about Angel's baby. So they were able to compare that expression to the lack of emotion when she spoke about the people she killed. In closing, the state pointed out that Donna claimed to have blacked out during the shooting, but happened to only shoot people who supported ousting her. Rather than snapping, as she claimed, it actually appeared like she had pretty good focus on who her targets were. The jury deliberated less than two hours, and they came back with a verdict of guilty for first-degree murder on all four counts and two counts of attempted murder with the special circumstances for use of firearms. This verdict made Donna eligible for the death penalty, but the jury still had to go through the penalty phase to decide whether or not they recommended it. During this penalty phase, the surviving victims testified about the impact of their trauma on their lives. The defense wisely opted not to cross-examine any of them. The defense called three witnesses to speak on Donna's overall character, and they had that psychologist testify again as to Donna's mental health, her history of childhood abuse, growing up in poverty, dealing with homelessness when she was younger, and other life issues that may mitigate to the jury the crimes at least enough to spare her a sentence of death. In not quite four hours of deliberation, the jury decided not to spare her and recommended the death penalty. It would be a couple of months before the judge would formally sentence Donna, and in that time, a witness came forward saying that one of the police officers falsely testified in regards to when he took Donna's backpack into evidence and that this showed a break in chain of custody and lying to cover it up. The issue with this was that there was a note in the backpack written by Donna about how the eviction was a bunch of BS. This note was used by the state to show that Donna was upset before she even went in there and she was not provoked in the moment. If there was an issue with how this note ended up in evidence and an officer lied to cover it up from the stand, well, we have a problem. The defense asked for a new trial based on this allegedly false testimony. But the state said that 
this was actually a, quote, willful misunderstanding of the officer's testimony. They were trying to twist what he said to make it sound like he perjured himself when he did not. The judge looked everything over, looked at the police reports and the testimony and the witness statements and determined that there was no evidence of perjury. What the officer said happened and what was documented as happening were the same. There were accusations that this case was being undermined on purpose because of political issues with the prosecutor, and that is one of those background detail context things. The book, Mass Murder in California's Empty Quarter, gets into in more depth than we will hear. Bottom line, the request for a new trial was denied, and the formal sentencing hearing went ahead in April 2017. The judge took the jury recommendation and sentenced Donna to death for the murders and to 150 years for the attempted murders. Being that this was a death penalty case, Donna has the right to an automatic direct appeal. According to the California docket, she applied for an extension for filing this appeal numerous times, and her current extension will run out in February 2022. I imagine that appeal is coming. It's just taking time to get it together. Before we close out, I do want to talk for a minute about the choice I made here to change Donna's name. There is a movement that has been going on for years for the media to stop naming perpetrators of mass murders. The reasoning is twofold. One is to elevate the names of the victims and heroes above the name of the perpetrator, and the other is to prevent copycats. I will be honest that at first I was not going to change her name. I'm honestly still on the fence about it. Changing names is not something new to me. I do it all the time. I do it with minors. I do it with surviving victims of sexual assault. Sometimes I do it with suspects or persons of interest in crimes if they haven't been public about their connection to a case. I do that to protect their privacy, a courtesy I am hard-pressed to extend to Donna. And I can't argue that I elevated the stories of the victims here because I still refer to Donna more than any other person. Because this is a look at the lead-up to a mass murder. How can I say with a straight face that I'm following this no-notoriety movement when I've literally been talking about the shooter for an hour now? The way to combat that would be to not tell the story at all, but it was one I wanted to tell and I think there's a value in telling. On the other hand, the prevention of copycats argument did persuade me a bit. There is no evidence Donna did this to get notoriety or get her name in the media, but there is evidence other mass shooters have wanted that fame and seeing how much attention mass murderers get influences them. Now, does it influence them enough that they wouldn't have committed the crime if they knew we would ignore them or change their names? That they wouldn't get the fame? I'm not convinced of that. But I am open to the idea that we should remove as many contributing factors as possible. And if all I had to do was change one name to do that, why not? So to make this decision... I did a very scientific thing. I did a Twitter poll, obviously. Then I looked at websites like Don't Name Them and No Notoriety, both of which advocate for restricted naming of mass shooters. Then I looked to NPR to see what their practices were. 
they have been in recent years minimizing the use of the name of the shooter. They do have exceptions, and one is in articles where the reporting goes beyond what happened and gets into the background that would inform on the causes of the shooting. The NPR article I read discussed specifically the 2021 spa killings in Atlanta, looking into how purity culture shaped the perpetrator's life and influenced what happened was an exception to the no-naming or limited naming. I do feel like what I'm doing here falls into that latter exception. We looked into what led to these events, except with this case, everything is over and done with. There's no court case left. Donna has appeals, but there's a moratorium on the death penalty in California. She's not at risk of being executed. There's no innocence claim here. There's hardly an argument like there was with Lisa Montgomery for mitigating circumstances. Donna was a bully, and when she came up against a situation she couldn't bully her way out of, she murdered people, and she's going to spend the rest of her life in prison for it. So in the end, weighing all of these things, I decided to change her name because our understanding of this case does not matter whether I call her Kathy, Susan, Janet, Donna, whatever. It did deprive her of a little bit of attention my podcast may have given her. And not giving her that notoriety and public attention in the context of the larger movement to remove fame from mass murders may help. Or I could be making absolutely no difference. Maybe she's glad to have her name left out of it. Maybe in five, ten years, we have evidence that naming killers actually discourages mass murderers. And if that happens, I'll do things differently then. I have to make these ethical reporting calls with the information I have at the time, and sometimes that information is a little unclear, and that really is where I am right now with this. If you do want more information on the No Notoriety, Don't Name Them movement, I will leave links to those websites in the show notes. I certainly don't want to be giving it lip service by just changing her name without acknowledging the fact that I did just devote an hour to her. You can reach out to me on social media or email crimelinespodcast at gmail.com if you have an opinion one way or the other on this No Notoriety movement. Let's leave this thinking of Sheila Russo, Angel Penn, Glenn Colonico, and Rurik Davis, as well as Melissa and Monica Davis, who survived their injuries, and Angel's little baby, who was adopted by Melissa, someone who experienced his earliest tragedy alongside him. As we lift up the victims, we also have to lift up the heroes like Spencer Babreau, who protected Melissa and got the knife off of Donna, and Jenica McGarva, who ran to the police station for help, and Nikki Munholland, who ran out of the building, making sure everyone outside, including the children, found their way to safety, and the Cedarville Rancheria, who found themselves a household name only due to tragedy, when they do so much good supporting their community. These are the names we should remember. Not what's-her-face sitting in prison, ineligible for release. We need to remember the people who faced a bully and a tribe that grew from tragedy to make a safer and more secure future for themselves and their children.
Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 